This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Kate McGregor for a discussion of sexual violence and historical trauma and the activism and commemoration that can sometimes follow. Kate McGregor is professor in Southeast Asian history in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. She specializes in Indonesian historiography with particular interests in memories of violence, the Indonesian military, Islam, identity, and historical international links between Indonesia and the rest of the world. Her new book is Systemic Silencing, Activism, Memory, and Sexual Violence in Indonesia, published in 2023 as part of the Critical Human Rights series at the University of Wisconsin Press. In the 1930s and 1940s, the Japanese military imposed a system of prostitution across East and Southeast Asia. Since the 1990s, survivors of this system, euphemistically called comfort women, have sought recognition of and redress for the sexual violence that they endured. McGregor's book explores this history, its fallout, and the ongoing activism of its survivors in the context of Indonesia. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate McGregor. Kate McGregor, thanks so much for joining me on the channel to talk about your new book, Systemic Silencing, Activism, Memory, and Sexual Violence in Indonesia. I'm really pleased to be talking with you today. Great to be here. So the topic of your book has to do with the system of prostitution that was enforced by the Japanese military during the Asia-Pacific War. So just to start our conversation, what can you tell us about this system of prostitution and specifically about the lives of the women who were victimized by it? Yeah, thanks for that question. So what we know about the system is the system originated in China in the 1930s. So it's often dated to around 1932 and also was often correlated with the rape of Nanjing incident. So what we began to see in the beginnings of this system were that the Japanese military began to organise really a system of enforced military prostitution And this system was organised on the basis of several assumptions, particularly about male soldiers and Japanese soldiers, and those assumptions included the fact that the soldiers needed to have access to sex, basically, so the women were there to provide that sex. But also another rationale was it was meant to protect the health of the soldiers because of the potential for venereal disease. So there was going to be an effort to also control the health of these women so the soldiers would not get infected with venereal diseases so that they'd be healthy soldiers. And the third kind of rationale was that um, that it would prevent uh, sexual violence against other women. However, all of these rationale actually need to be challenged. Number one, kind of this assumption about male sexuality is problematic, but also the assumption that it would prevent the rapes of other women because we know that even though there was this organised system, there was still sexual violence outside of the system. So this is really a bit more of a myth in the end. And also we know that the system began in China, but it's also implemented in almost every country that the Japanese occupied. So we talk about Korea there, 
but also uh, Philippines, all of Southeast Asia, including Indonesia, which I'll speak about in more detail later. But it's most closely identified, I guess, with Korea. And what happened to the women in the system? First of all, they were recruited, I use that word with inverted commas, by various means. And that could be women who were already working in sex work, who were forced then to work in this system, an organized system that enforced military prostitution. But it could also include girls and women who were either abducted from their homes, from the street, also girls and women who were duped into the system by means of forced uh, uh, promises, sorry, of, for example, uh, education abroad or jobs abroad, which ended up being false promises. So once they were in the system, these women were then, girls and women were subjected to uh, daily rape by the soldiers. They had to work long hours to serve the soldiers. They didn't have control over their work hours. Uh, they were also subjected to forced medical checks in order to ensure the, the protection of the soldiers. And they were also usually held in circumstances of detention. They were not free to leave the places where they were held. So they often had to work six days at least a week, and then they were not free to leave at any time of the day that they wanted to. They were also guarded. And in addition, the women were subjected to other forms of violence, uh, physical violence sometimes, especially if they tried to resist. They might have been beaten. And some women, we also know, were taken a long way from their homes. So, for example, there were examples of Korean women who ended up in Java, a major island of Indonesia. So that's one example of women being also taken far from their homes. You mentioned that this system, this very violent system, occurred in many places where the Japanese occupied as you also mentioned, your work is particularly concerned with Indonesia. So can we turn to that for a minute? And maybe you can tell us how the system played out specifically in Indonesia during the Japanese occupation there from 1942 to 45. Yeah, thanks for that. So I guess there was, I studied in detail what happened in this territory that was formerly the Netherlands East Indies, but became Indonesia after independence. So there were a lot of similarities that I could see with the research that had already been conducted, for example, on China or on um, the Korea in particular. So we know that women were subjected to similar methods of recruitment, inverted commas, to other places. President, the man who became the president of Indonesia, President Sukarno, um, famously kind of offered women who've been working in sex work in the island of Sumatra to be the first women to be offered to the Japanese soldiers on the basis that this would protect the honour of other Indonesian women. So this is one example that uh, women who'd been working in sex work were sometimes, you know, offered, inverted commas, first to Japanese soldiers. But there was still this pattern of um, the duping of Indonesian girls and women into the system um, by the Japanese military. But there was also patterns of local collaboration as well, which we also know about in, in China and Korea to various extents. But in Indonesia, there was also local collaboration, which meant things like a village head might be complicit in, for example, you know, supplying, inverted commas, you know, 20 20 women at the request of the Japanese military. But I do say in my book, we need to contextualize all of this uh, under the understanding that it was a situation of occupation and coercion. So everybody was probably facing different pressures, but we do know that there was complicity from local people as well. 
But one interesting difference perhaps in Indonesia is that Dutch women, uh, several Dutch women also ended up in this system. So maybe around 200 to 300 Dutch women is estimated. And these women were taken from internment camps, so slightly different to the patterns of recruitment, but they ended up in similar circumstances in the so-called comfort stations where, again, they were subjected to to being guarded and limitations on their freedoms, etc., And we also know in Indonesia, because I looked at a lot of the records of the uh, Dutch Netherlands, sorry, Netherlands East Indies intelligence forces, they collected records about what happened to women during the occupation. And we also know that there were many other patterns of sexual abuse as well, including forced marriages, uh, which is something I haven't heard as much about, for example, in other countries, and also, um, you know, rapes that still occurred outside of the system as well. So I think it's important to emphasize that there was a lot of different forms of sexual violence as well. Speaking of the local context and how that allows things to play out differently, one of the things that's really nuanced in your book, which I also appreciated in your discussion, is that you talk about how this system built upon existing social structures that were already there prior to the Japanese occupation in Indonesia. Specifically, you talk about things like patriarchal attitudes and practices among Indonesians and Dutch colonial authorities. So what are some of these practices that in some ways laid the groundwork for the sexual violence and exploitation that you're looking at in the book? Yeah, thanks for for pointing that out. And I guess one reason that I also wanted to tell that story is that too often I find in, at least in popular media commentary, that sometimes it's suggested that, you know, all blame lies in the hands of the Japanese military and a lot of blame certainly does. But yes, there were other... um, local values, systems, hierarchies at work that also made this system possible. And I think it's important to identify those if we're we're to think about, you know, what context these kinds of sexual violence take place. So, yes, the patriarchal attitudes that were already there um, when the Japanese arrived um, included, I guess, forms of Dutch colonial uh, patriarchy as well. So in the system of the Dutch colonial society, Indonesian women, particularly I would say lower class Indonesian women, were at the bottom of the hierarchy in terms of the social structure. And they were also seen as people who it was very easy to exploit and maybe also sexually available to exploit by Dutch men. And that included Dutch men who might be you know, engaging in trade, etc., but also the Dutch soldiers, interestingly. There was also a practice of barracks concubinage as well, which occurred in colonial society. So we see that there was a pattern in Dutch colonial society also of Dutch men who'd been stationed in the colony taking Indonesian women as uh, sort of live-in housekeepers, which also meant the women typically were bed partners with the men as well. So we could see a system of sexual exploitation that was already underway there. And those women were referred to as nyai. Uh, and there's been quite a lot written about them. Um, so that is definitely one sign of this uh, established system uh, of Dutch patriarchy and exploitation of Indonesian women. But in addition to that, there were also local cultures of patriarchy, which we could see in terms of the way that women were treated as uh, women and girls could sometimes be gifted by families to kind of achieve, um, I guess, to achieve higher social status by gifting women to other families. And also we see that 
a culture of kind of deference of girls to fathers and older male figures also played a part in that in that capacity to dupe younger women because they would trust elder males, including fathers or village heads. So because of the concept of Indonesian women and the expectation that they should be dutiful daughters, they would find it very hard to question if their father or a village head say, you must pack up your things and be ready to go and, you know, um, usually they were told a different excuse as to what they were going to be doing, but be ready to go. Um, so they wouldn't question authority. So all of these things made it maybe more possible for the Japanese military to exploit uh, women in local society. There seems to be a deep and troubling link between imperial ambitions and sexual violence. And I think that's not unique to the context you're working on. But in general terms, what was the gender ideology undergirding the kind of hyper-nationalist and expansionist project of Japan in the early 40s? Yeah, thanks for that. So I am more an expert on Indonesia, but I tried to learn as much as I could about Japan in writing this book. And I guess uh, the gender ideology was generally characterized by a view that male sexuality is, uh, and especially the sexuality of soldiers, is characterized by this inherent need um, for sex, and that women should be available to fulfill this need. So, kind of ideas of patriarchy were really accentuated in this system. This seemed to be, this seemed to also apply to um, not only um, Japanese soldiers, but also Japanese civilians who were stationed in the colony. So, thinking of that imperial dimension, there was also a sense in terms of the way that the Japanese approached local society in Indonesia, that everything was there as a resource for them. That's the way they approached, you know, the natural resources of the country, but also male labour in terms of forced the forced labourers who were required to build railways or infrastructure, but also the women. They're just seen as a resource, um, maybe in the context of the empire, but also in the context of the war effort, I guess. And there was a sense also, I guess, from the Japanese that, of this accentuated idea of male virility, maybe in terms of, you know, also conquering and being superior um, to other Asians, even though there was this ideology of the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, it's very clear from the way the Japanese treated Indonesians, most Indonesians, so there were some exceptions for the elite men, but that they were seen as expendable and resources, really. So that's what I'd suggest. Turning back to the women themselves who were victims of this system, can you tell us about what their experiences might have been like? What were their lives actually like? Do you mean there as well also before before the occupation or just after they'd been captured? Oh, well, actually, I meant after they'd been captured, but let's start before, in fact. Yeah, well, interestingly, as I mentioned before, it is difficult to get the entire life story of a lot of these women. So this is an interesting factor, but it would be really interesting to look at to what extent women of different classes ended up in this system. So my assumption would be that people of a certain class may have been able to um, sometimes perhaps have more resources to resist uh, in terms of whether they could pay somebody or get somebody else to volunteer in their place, right? So there may have been more capacity to resist, although it was very difficult to resist. You could be met with violence. If, for example, the Japanese military identified a woman that they wanted in the system and you resisted. There are some cases where, you know, fathers are killed on the spot because they try to resist. So it was very difficult. 
But I think in terms of the women who ended up in this system, some of the most striking stories for me were women who maybe were so desperate for work because of the circumstances also of the Japanese occupation. It was so difficult to even find enough to eat and people wanted to support their families. So that also made it women who were in a more economically vulnerable position more likely to perhaps be duped into the system. And then once they're in the system, I think it depended on whether they were taken far from home or whether they were in their local society because there were comfort stations in major cities of Indonesia, but some women, as I said, were taken far from home. That might have made a difference in terms of whether they had any contact with their family at all. But some interesting women, like Mardiem, who's at the centre of my book, was taken from Jogjakarta by boat across to another island. So she would have been completely isolated from her family and from networks, and she would have spoken Javanese probably, people in that island would not speak the same language, so completely cut off from support networks. And then also, as I mentioned, once in the system, and for some women who were very young, girls and women, this also could have potentially been their first sexual experience. So I think also very traumatic for a lot of the women, but also it's evident that from the start of their experience, although a lot of the experiences are narrated many years later, that a lot of women almost immediately felt shame about what had happened to them, even though they were not to blame, but they still blamed themselves because of ways of understanding sexuality and that the expectation of the women must guard their morality, right? So I think there was almost immediately this process of self-blaming and feeling shame about what had happened to the women. So they're the general perceptions I'd have about, you know, how women experienced it. Apart from all those conditions I mentioned before, they were pretty much the same in terms of how they experienced daily life. This is obviously a really dark story with a lot of trauma involved. And I just wonder if I can ask you a more personal question. What was the experience of doing this research like for you and writing about these women's experience of such a dark period? Yes, uh, I must acknowledge it is an incredibly difficult topic. And for example, whenever I'm teaching about this topic, I always warn people about the content. But if there there is something more positive about this story, it is the fact that I tried to also cover survivor activists, um, people who I call survivor activists, because the women that I focus on, some of them did try to voice their experiences and to turn around those feelings of shame into a feeling of actually, no, I was wronged. And so for me, that's an incredibly important story. And the other kind of more positive side of this story is the solidarity that this movement generated, including between people from Indonesia and people from Japan. So yes, the first half of this book where I do talk about the women's experiences and really draw out what happened to them is quite harrowing material. But again, I think I just felt a sense of responsibility to contextualize this story and tell this story as much as I could. It's difficult material, but I didn't actually interview any survivors directly myself. I made that choice, as I mentioned at the start of the book, because a lot of the women who've told this story have ended up being very disappointed and have questioned, you know, why did they tell their story? Because they came away with so little. So for me, it was a very big question to ask. There's not many survivors left in Indonesia and the two key survivor activists I wanted to write about have passed away some time ago. But I didn't want to ask other women to retell the story again 
without being able to concretely promise I can give you this because I think there's been a lot of raised expectations in this movement about what can be done and I wanted to be realistic. You know, maybe I can help tell their story but I'm not sure that I can, for example, give them everything that they want which might be more concretely compensation at the end of their lives. So so that was a difficult challenge but I felt like there was already a lot of activists recorded testimony about what had happened to the women's and I also had a lot of archival material to work with which gave me the perspective of uh perspective sort of just after the war but every source that I used I tried to approach critically as well but yeah it is an incredibly tough topic but I think I've been teaching about it for a few years I just felt it was so important and I didn't feel the Indonesian story had been sufficiently researched so that kind of overrode everything. But as I said, I was a little bit happier that at least I could tell the story of activism as well, which has some more positive sides as well. Yeah, we're going to get into that activist side in just a minute. Before we do, can you talk a little bit about what happened in the immediate or even medium aftermath of the war? In chapter four, especially, you talk about the experience of abandonment and shame and recognition and how these kind of tangled together and beset all of the survivors. Can you talk about their post-war experiences? Yeah, thanks for drawing attention to that chapter of the book, because I did want to draw attention to, you know, the incredible challenges that these survivors faced when the occupation ended. Of course, when the occupation was going on, they didn't know how long it would last. Uh, But when it did end kind of suddenly, there were very difficult experiences then. So when people talk about the the so-called comfort women, they talk about two kinds of trauma. There's the trauma of what happened to them during the war, but also then that post-war period in which a lot of women were actually blamed for their experiences. So for people like Mardiem, who I've mentioned before, who were taken far from their homes and to different islands, islands, it was sometimes a little bit more possible to disguise or conceal what had happened to them because people might people believe, for example, Mardiem had gone to a different island to work as an entertainer, so perhaps she could, you know, keep up that story. Uh, a lot of women in those circumstances decided to quickly marry, also perhaps to start a new family, maybe to look for sources of support. Um, and to try to deflect from what had happened to them. But for women who'd been detained fairly close to their homes, of course, the local community probably knew what had happened to them. So they probably were subjected to more surveillance and shame with regards to how local society viewed them. And there are some instances I wrote about, one instance I read about in my book in one community where women's heads were shaved by the local community and they were kind of paraded through the town. So there was sometimes this intense process of communal shaming straight away. So it was very clear that the women were blamed by local society because of this belief that they should have guarded their guarded their chastity or that maybe somehow they were willing. And what is really interesting also is to think about how Dutch women who had been also detained in the system were treated within the colony. So a lot of those women, a lot of people who'd been in internment camps were taken to camps in the capital Batavia at the time and the women who had been subjected to this system were actually separated in a special section of the camp which was called the whores camp kind of you know by other members of the camp so it was also clear that across this Dutch community there was also stigmatization of Dutch women 
And through the memoirs of some Dutch survivors, it's also clear that it was very difficult for them, as it was for Indonesian women, to open up what had happened to them, to even share that with their immediate family, like their parents. And sometimes they'd be faced with rejection or don't talk about that again. They'd be shut down. So again, that sort of tells us about the cultures surrounding these women and why they did, in the end, sometimes choose silence uh, for a very long time, because it was difficult to speak about this. So I think that's the most important thing about this post-war experience. There were many reasons why the majority of women actually chose to remain silent about what happened to them. You're an historian, and so far we've been talking about this mostly as sort of an event that occurred in the past. But really, your book, as you just alluded to, is at least as much about contemporary memory and a history of activism that followed this historical event. In a lot of ways, you're more concerned with the afterlives of this sexual violence or how such histories sort of continue to impact the present. Across Asia, how have survivors sought acknowledgement and redress for the violence they've experienced? I think it's important to first of all say that after you know several decades of not being so vocal about this past, there did kind of emerge a moment, a possibility in the early 1990s when a number of women, uh, bravely led by the Korean survivor Kim Hak-sun, began to open up about their experiences, which was really an extraordinary moment of opening. So that shift began, interestingly, in East Asia. And as I explained in the book, there were some important factors that contributed to that opening in uh, East Asia, particularly in Japan and Korea. And those factors made it possible, I think, for the women to reframe their experiences and to start engaging in activism or demands for redress for this violence because a lot of the post-war treaties signed between Japan and other countries did not deal with cases of individual human rights abuses, which the women would fall under. And importantly, uh, the Tokyo trials and other international tribunals did not have a large focus on sexual violence, largely because in the context of all kind of post-war trials, there wasn't a large emphasis on sexual violence really until the 1990s either. So important factors began to change in Korean society in particular that made it possible for uh, survivor activists to emerge. They felt sufficiently supported and sufficiently able to reframe their stories. And in Korea, that goes back to the context of a democracy movement where there was increased emphasis on human rights, women's rights, but also calling out sexual violence that was occurring in Korea. And women's activists were incredibly important in also drawing attention to contemporary movements such as, um, or contemporary or we say practices, including patterns of Japanese sex tourism to Korea. And women's activists were were making the link and saying, well, actually, historically, this is also linked to the system of the comfort women. So all of those factors, I guess, helped to open up this issue. And also there were several Korean uh, victims, individual victims of war crimes who began to also speak out, engage in court cases in Japan and demand justice. So all of these things open space for Korean women to come forward. And as I mentioned, Kim Hapsun was the first, first survivor activist to kind of demand redress. 
And her public testimony to the media was just so important. It, it was the reason that a lot of other survivor activists, who I call kind of icons of the movement, came forward. So we can talk about Maria Rosa Henson in the Philippines, Jan Rafa Hearn, who is a Dutch Indonesian background, and even Tamina, the first Indonesian survivor. All of them say that Kim Hatsun was important for them choosing to speak out. So I guess that's how the movement began. And this emergence of activism was also underpinned by you know, broader changes in understanding about human rights and sexual violence. And so activism really, I would say, began in Korea, also importantly supported by Japanese um, supporters, but also it was very strong in the Philippines and other countries. Even though there were these sorts of transnational activism, you note that the case of Indonesia remained relatively shrouded for a while. Why was that the case and how did that begin to change in the 90s? How did Indonesia come to join these larger movements originating in Korea and the Philippines and elsewhere? Yeah, so the Indonesian context was difficult. It was difficult because if we think about the early 1990s, this is almost the third moving into the third decade of authoritarian military rule in Indonesia. So in that context, human rights were very much a low priority. Uh, and there was little attention to it. And this was also a regime that had strictly controlled and crushed uh, a more progressive Indonesian women's movement. So there, there are two factors that meant that there was little space for engaging in activism around human rights. And also the women's movement uh, had been curtailed. It once was very strong, but it had been curtailed. So there wasn't as much, perhaps, attention to issues that affected women in society. It was a much more kind of tame kind of agenda around women's rights. And also, interestingly, in Indonesia, perhaps because of its trajectory, the Indonesian left was perhaps the force in society that was most critical of Japan, but the Indonesian left was destroyed in the 1960s. And then came the Suharto regime, which collaborated strongly with Japan. And so there was little reason uh, and little support from the top for any kind of critical reckoning with the Japanese occupation. So that meant that unlike Korea, where uh, Korean nationalism is kind of focused on revisiting the Japanese colonialism in that country, there was a very different context in Indonesia of a lack of critical reckoning. Indonesia, unlike the Philippines or Korea, did not have military bases where there were ongoing issues of military sexual violence. So that wasn't a similar trigger in this country. And also really interestingly, one factor I think is that there was very little attention to the historical experiences of marginalized people, such as the so-called comfort women. Generally, these women were poor Indonesian women. And because of what had happened to them, that would create a kind of further marginalization of these women in society. So these people rarely made it into history books um, because there wasn't a tradition, unlike in Japan, of kind of writing history from below. And in Japan, it was that kind of history writing that first unearthed the stories of women who were former so-called comfort women. So I think all of these things combined to make it difficult for activism to begin. And activism finally began 
kind of in earnest in 1993 when Japanese lawyers visited from the, the Japan Bar Federation and they were interested in investigating the extent to which there had been cases of individuals who'd suffered human rights abuses during the war. They came on a fact-finding mission and this stimulated Indonesian legal aid to begin documenting the cases of forced labourers and also these women. And this was the beginning of perhaps a new awareness that there may be a possibility for actual individual redress for these people. So that that was really the trigger for activism. But I do want to say before they visited Indonesia to Mina, the very first survivor had already come out and spoken uh, when she heard Kim Hatsun, but there was very little reaction to her testimony, interestingly. What was the ideal imagined outcome of this kind of activism what were they hoping in terms of redress? Was it primarily recognition or were there was you mentioned compensation earlier? And I guess after beyond the goal, what were some of the outcomes of it? Were they successful in these attempts? Yes, this is I think that the activists have been fairly consistent around what they expected. So they did expect recognition. And recognition and remembrance, and that might be inclusion, for example, they were they really did not want their stories to be forgotten. So some women thought it was important that their stories be included in textbooks because there's been a huge amount of debate about what's in textbooks, especially in Japan. So they wanted to make sure that this experience was recorded in textbooks, but perhaps also remembered in other ways, perhaps through monuments. The second thing might be apology. They wanted an apology, which also entails recognition, first of all, but an apology from the Japanese government that they had been wronged. And then the third thing was compensation, yes. So if we think about all of those things, uh, it's a difficult kind of story to tell because you know some people say that oh, the Japanese government has never apologised. That isn't actually correct. There have been several apologies, but the difficulty is that sometimes a senior politician might give an apology, but then others may rebut it or, you know, undermine that apology. So that's always been the point of dispute with survivors, I guess. They want a kind of genuine apology that's not reversed. A, a very important statement was the 1993 Kono statement, in which the Minister Kono did acknowledge that the Japanese military had been involved and expressed remorse, etc. So we could say that there have been several expressions of apology, but then other Japanese leaders have been far more moderate in offering an apology, and that's the source of kind of contest here. In terms of recognition, at different points in time, there has been more inclusion of this story in textbooks in Japan, but there's also been a huge backlash against this issue in Japan. So that has fluctuated over time, especially under the leadership of Abe, who was less supportive of recognition of this issue. There was more kind of a rise of kind of comfort women denialism as well. So again, if we think about why is this movement still going, it relates to this denialist movement as well. And finally, with compensation, the Japanese government created a kind of independent organization called the Asian Women's Fund that I talk about quite a bit in my book that included largely funding from Japanese individuals who donated to the organization. And those funds would then be donated to any survivor who wanted to apply for compensation. But there was also some money there from the Japanese government that went towards social projects. But a big objection from activists was, why is this this division and why doesn't the Japanese government pay survivors? They believed that this was an attempt to get around 
responsibility. And so there was a lot of controversy over this fund. Um, some women did apply and receive compensation, but in the case of Indonesia, the Indonesian government was also very wary about allowing payment of individuals. They said that it would be too difficult to manage and they didn't know who the survivors were, which seemed a bit strange because a lot of survivors had actually registered and given their testimony. So in the case of Indonesia, a deal was signed between the Indonesian government and the Japanese government to instead use the social fund money to create nursing homes that, that these women could supposedly live in. But was very controversial because a lot of survivors did not want to live in the nursing homes. The nursing homes were built, but in the end, it was kind of a mixed population of mostly people who were not survivors and others. So a lot of disgruntlement in Indonesia that very few women received any direct compensation from Japan. But really interestingly, Japanese activists sometimes banded together to to raise their own funds to try and send money to particular survivors who at least they were connected with. So, so in the end, the story of most survivors is that there has been some recognition globally, and certainly there are movements across the world to support this issue, um, that on the issue of apology, it's a mixed story, and on the issue of compensation, it's not very satisfactory for most women, I would say. The topic of recognition brings us back actually to the title of your book, Systemic Silencing, and to the opening of your introduction. And in your introduction to the book, you describe the dedication inscribed on the headstone of an outspoken survivor you mentioned before named Tumina. As we conclude our conversation, could you reflect just in general as a historian on the importance of memorialization, commemoration, and public monuments in situations like this of sort of grave historical crimes. Yeah, thanks for that. So I think especially with the number of women who experienced this experience really rapidly dwindling, there's, you know, only a handful of survivors left in Korea with the most number of women have actually come out and, and testified about this experience. In Indonesia, it would be a small number of women as well. Then we have to think about how will their memory be preserved? So monuments are an incredibly important way of preserving their calls for remembrance. And if we actually think about it, there are very few monuments to women per se, but these are specific monuments to women who experienced something horrific, but they're monuments also to the brave women who did speak out about their experiences. So these monuments actually could speak to multiple issues, I think. They could speak to awareness about gendered violence and its horrific consequences, but they can also speak to, you know, the issue of war and the horrors of war. So there are many messages, I think, that monuments of this kind can commemorate. In Indonesia, interestingly, there are no monuments specifically to this issue. There only is the renovated grave of Tamina because that's maybe a less potent gesture because in many other countries where there have been monuments established to this issue, it's become quite controversial, uh, a lot of backlash against these monuments, especially in America, even in Australia, and also in the Philippines. So for me, I think the monuments have a lot of symbolism with regards to messages around gender-based violence, but they are highly contested because from the perspective of the Japanese government, they're seen as shaming Japan, but my view is they don't have to be interpreted in that way. I think their purpose goes beyond that. And I think that they're also there to promote questioning 
you know, uh, and hopefully make people more aware about this history and its horrific consequences. Kate McGregor, thank you so much for coming on the channel to talk to me about your new book. Again, the book is Systemic Silencing, and I really appreciate you coming on to shed light on this sometimes very difficult topic. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Kate McGregor. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's IIAS.ASIA. See you next time. <laughs>